Welcome to the New Mind Creator Podcast with your host, Maurice, the New Mind Creator. Today, I'll be interviewing Madeline Weiss. Please make sure to hit the subscribe button so that you'll receive alerts when new episodes are available on Sundays at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. Also, please leave me a review on iTunes or Spotify. How would you define being a mind expert? What does that mean, being a mind expert? Well, thank you for that really good question, of course. What is mind? You know, I um, had that question years and years and years ago when I was taking a um, cognitive psychology class at Harvard, and I raised my hand and I asked that question. I said, you know, you use the words mind and brain interchangeably. Would you mind helping us unpack that? Like, what is mind? And he um, actually, I think, didn't appreciate the question so much and said something like, well, if you took your brain out and put it on a slab and cut it up, what do you think would be left of your mind? And then right after that, I attended a conference um, put on by MIT at the Museum of Science in Boston And it was all about the mind. And I went up to the facilitator and I said, you know, I'm so curious about how people are defining mind. And I don't see a definition here. And she said, oh, that's because nobody really knows what that is. So we're all, as people are really trying very hard to figure that out. And I actually have a slide in one of my presentations, which shows what the areas of the brain that people are learning about as the seat of consciousness. But the way I like to think about it is hardware and software, so that the brain is the hardware and the mind is the programs that we run, the stories that we tell ourselves that we live in as if we think they are facts, when to some extent we kind of created them ourselves without realizing that. And I always say the upside of that is if we created it to a considerable extent ourselves, we can also recreate those stories and write better stories for us to live in once we understand how to master our minds. And that's pretty much the essence of the work that I do. And suppose someone is unhappy with the results of their life. They have gone through different situations in their lives and they've written a story. They've told themselves a story about the situations that they've had in their life. And is working in a negative way. It's not producing the life that they desire and they are stuck in this cycle. How would they go about changing the programming? So a big part, you know, I'm a uh, very classically trained psychotherapist and what they, one of the things that, you know, is so embedded in me is that the resistance to change 
is the work. You know, we humans cling to our comfort zones. It's like the devil we know. And we don't realize how much or what is in the way of our growth. So in my book, Getting to Great, and the great is an acronym, and the T in the great, in the acronym, stands for either tackling or taming or tending, whichever one of those words would best suit any individual. So let's say taming the resistance to change. And people, people barely know. Most of our thoughts are not in the conscious mind. So we hardly even know what the resistance to our satisfaction and success might really be. Sometimes it's, you know, buried really deeply. So if people keep on doing what they're doing, keep on getting what they're getting, and they don't like it, it's a really good idea to um, take a good look at, you know, we don't know what we don't know. So bringing more of the unconscious to our awareness and looking at how that might be in the way. I don't, I don't personally or professionally think that people don't want what they say they want. It's just there's something else they want that they want more and it's in the way and they don't even always know what that is. So. And how can they get help with finding out that resistance? Because sometimes we can do things on our own and sometimes we need someone outside of us to point out certain things resistances and then it's it all relies or falls back on the individual to take that information as well and do something with it yeah i have a a a three-part series and the first is on how you come up with really great goals how you make good decisions about where you want to go but your point maurice about the commitment you you can have the best decision and the best goal in the world. And if you're having trouble committing to it, it doesn't really amount to much. And then the third part is that there are almost always other people involved and navigating the people is um, something that's a really good thing to get more comfortable with so that they're not in the way. So we want you not to be in the way, but we also want the environment around us, working with us, not against us as well. If your question is, how do you know when you need professional help? I think, you know, there are so many books out there and there are online courses and there are groups that people can join. And I think, I think it's a fine idea if those ideas appeal to anyone to try that. But if the um, resistance seems not to be easing and if things don't seem to get better, then it might be a good idea to find someone. You know, there's um, Atul Gawande is a surgeon who says that anybody who wants to be great at anything and in our business, it's being great at your life. But he says that anybody who wants to be great at anything really should get a coach um, or a therapist, but someone who can stand outside of you 
and help you to see what you can't see. You also co-authored a book, a handbook, Stressful Transitions Across the Lifespan. I did. I, I actually co-authored a chapter in that book. I didn't co-author the book. I, I co-authored a chapter in there. That was a long time ago. I would rather recommend the more current one, which is Getting to Great. And it's based on the examples of people I have worked one-to-one with whose lives have really transformed. And it's such a pleasure to be a part of that. What are some exercises that people could possibly do? Mm. Uh, Focus... Uh, release exercise yeah so the book getting to great and also the uh, the online courses are packed full of exercises the book has 10 chapters and there's a case study and an exercise at the end of all of them my favorite is for free on my website so it's a tab on at the top of the website and it says power breathing It's a 30-second mindset reset that puts the higher brain in charge. It is a mistake for people to think that their emotions should not be part of the equation when they are trying to figure out what to do or not do. The emotions are extremely important, but they are meant not to drive the bus, but to inform the higher brain. So the higher brain is integrated with the lower brain and says, thank you for sharing. I got it from here. And this power breathing mindset reset, it's also known as diaphragmatic breathing. Singers know how to use that or polyvagal breathing. But it takes uh, really 30 seconds and grounds us and centers focus clarity so that when we're feeling a bit rattled, and by the way, often you'll hear it about people feeling rattled in a bad way, like they're afraid or they're anxious or whatever. But I, I have had clients who have been so excited about like a possibility of an investor, let's say, that they're so excited that they can't think straight. So the idea is to get integrated and get grounded so that your highest self is in charge of your life. And, and you, I teach that. So, yeah. And you said uh, emotions are important, which is good to know because sometimes people try to run away from their emotions, but it's important. I know. You, you said it's like a signpost almost, but it's not, it's not usually, it's not meant to guide our lives we have to be in charge of them. Yes, we need to have that data. So um, I think it's Susan David who says in her book that emotions are data, not directives. And I like to say they don't get to drive the bus. But there are lots of examples and studies about people who had brain injuries so they didn't have access to the emotional part of their brain. And they were making really dumb decisions because they were working with only part of their brain instead of their whole brain. And I had a client 
not very long ago said to me, wait, are you saying that I'm supposed to take my emotions into account? My parents always said that I shouldn't, that it should be purely logical. And then I start telling her about all the data about how bad our cognitive functioning is when our emotions are not in the mix. So yeah, it's a really important point that um, somehow a lot of us have gotten wrong. I'll, I'll liken it to even when you meditate, when someone just begins to meditate, yeah. they will notice there are so many thoughts they become aware of right. and is constantly taking them off course. And they, when they see these, when, when they notice these emotions and different thoughts that take them off course, yeah. it's important just to bring themselves back to the present moment. And the more they do that, the more they can see the separation that you are more in control than you actually think. You said that so beautifully. And John Kabat-Zinn, you know, who's supposed to be the father of Western mindfulness. I took a week-long course with him, by the way. He is an amazing, wonderful, funny, smart human being, if anyone ever gets a chance to meet him or read him. You know, he's got lots of really great books out. But he made the point that this is another myth that people think when they're meditating, they're not supposed to have thoughts, that that's a bad thing. They actually sometimes will say that they stink at it because they're having thoughts. And his premise is that it's good that you're having thoughts because every time, as you described, Maurice, every time you notice the thought and bring your attention back to your breath, you win because you're building a muscle and that's how the muscle gets built. Every time you bring it back, you are building that muscle, which they say there's... Um, Sarah Lazar out of Mass General has studied that there's kind of like a buffer in the brain. There's actually a structural um, modification in the brain that buffers so that when the amygdala, the lower brain is freaking out, the higher brain gets the data, but doesn't get overwhelmed because of the buffer. So it gets through, but it doesn't get through in a toxic way. It gets through in a very useful way. You mentioned that earlier that you, you know, you went to Harvard. Well, you're Harvard trained licensed therapist and that's uh, prestige in itself. But in order to get there, there had to, you had to, go through some things what did you have to overcome oh, did, you have, did you have any struggles <laughs> oh my gosh so my um what do they call it Maurice is it an origin story or something <laughs> my my why mm -hmm. is that um when I was a very feisty mousy kind of little girl and which maybe you can tell, <laughs> I don't know. But when my father was 42 years old and I was 15, 
he died suddenly of a stroke. And I was grounded at the time because, like, I was always grounded for being what they called fresh. They said I was fresh because I said things I wasn't supposed to say. So I went for years thinking that he um, died of me until this one day at the cemetery. I broke down with my mother about, you know, how all my fault it was. And she said, no, honey, it wasn't you. It was work. And so my passion now is if I can help one little boy or girl's mommy or daddy or anybody else at all, for that matter, find more hours in the day and more clarity and focus and freedom and fulfillment and all that good stuff, I'm, I'm in. The other part of how I would like to answer your question is that because I was grounded so much, what I did was read and write. Like I was in the house by myself and I was making books and I'd, you know, color on the cover and sew it up the middle and make a book out of it. And so reading and writing is my answer to everything. So I have a blog where and it's also on the website at madelinemoyes.com. And it's, of course, it's free, where every week I pick out a piece of science because I just love, love, love learning. I'm a learning junkie. I pick out a piece of science and then I try to see what I can see about how that affects everyday life. So, and then I post that for the use of others for whatever that might be worth. But, you know, being grounded wouldn't typically have been that much fun, but I sort of figured out how to make it some kind of fun for me. And now I share that with the world. So does that address? Yes. You were 15 when your dad passed away. How old, approximately how old were you when your mom told you that it was work and not you? You know, people just didn't talk to their kids, or at least in my part of the world, didn't talk to their kids the way we talk to our kids now. So that really took years. I, I, I can picture the moment. And I was grown up. I think I was already on my way in my life before that happened. I think I had moved away, got married, had my own kids and come back to visit and we went to the cemetery. So I I just always had that feeling that I aggravated him to death. And I guess I guess she didn't bring it up and I didn't bring it up. So we never had the opportunity for her to tell me that there was something going on at work at the time. I brought it up because in so many people's lives, they've had situations and stories that they've told themselves, like you told yourself a story. That's a story, yeah. And years will pass, and you're thinking one thing, and it's not that until you get information from someone else. They hold the light and say, no, that's really not it. Look at it this way. And you can be held in bondage. And so many people are in bondage internally and may not even know it. But 
um, that's a really powerful story that even though it was years later, at least your mom was able, you all were able to have that interaction. I know. And you can reframe that story. And, you know, it's turned into the whole thing, the uh, being grounded and the reading and writing that came out of that and the enjoyment of that and the conversation with my mother and my commitment to doing whatever I can about the incredible work stress that people feel. Those are um, gifts to me that came out of some pretty significant strife. But you said, Maurice, that people can go for years. You know, people can go a lifetime and never know what it was that just robbed them of the joy that they could have had in their lives. True. What is your one to grow on? What valuable piece of information would you like to leave our audience with? So I studied Advaita Vedanta, believe it or not, pre-Hindu tradition for close to somewhere between 20 and 25 years. And they have a concept called good company. And people like automatically think that's about the people that you hang out with. And actually it is, but it's way more than that. So it's the food you eat and the wine you may drink, the books you read, the movies you watch. And it is also the company you keep. You know, we didn't exactly get to pick our parents mostly, but we can pick the company that we keep now. But what I also want to add to this and this is probably, well, I'll take the probably out. I think this is the most crucial piece there is, is the company that we keep in our own minds. And I'm going to tell you that I know from my work that a lot of people have very bad company in their minds. And that's what we work on, straightening that out. So I like to, to leave you with, the concept of good company in every way possible, everywhere, inside and out, the finest that we can find. Thank you for listening to The New Mind Creator Podcast with your host, Maurice, The New Mind Creator. This podcast has been sponsored by Abundant Sports and True Serum. Head over to www.mauriceflornary.com to receive more motivation and insight to help create your new mind.